no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World, where our guest today happens to be Coachella headliner Beyonce. <laughs> no, no, no Beyonce. No, it's actually Andre the Giant. Oh. The, the silent presence of Andre the Giant who says to all of us, obey. Oh, that's. Uh, I think I was getting Andre the Giant mixed up with uh, the Jolly Green Giant. <laughs> Two different people. Yeah, no, it was always, you, you've seen the obey yes meme like out in the world yes which is a shepherd fairy construction which is still kind of a thing everywhere so so i was reading this morning a article in the new york times it's one of their latest feature articles about a fire that happened at cornell university in 1967 this is this really interesting story in which um cornell university had started a a new program uh kind of they were trying to develop a six-year phd so come in as a freshman in six years you have a phd school and they are you had a phd out of school um and they they were calling themselves fuds like like a phd but with a u in the middle of it and they brought in 50 students um to, to to be the first group of fuds and what happened within the first year, I mean, within like a couple months of each other is their dorm was set on fire three times. Mm. And the story in the New York times article is sort of a, you know, who done it. Uh, this, this was a case that was never solved. There's some theories from people who used to live there, people that got interested in it. Um, a, a lot of them tie back into thinking it was probably one of the FUDs themselves. Uh, but six people had died and, and, you know, half, half the people probably lived, um, fairly interesting lives, never really being able to, to settle back in. Mm-hmm. So the story was, you know, this is something that happened was never really solved. Um, the late sixties happens and, and, and everyone's minds go somewhere else and, and no one really ever follows up on this, uh, sort of the, the, the good old trying to solve the unsolved mystery and that got me thinking about our love for unsolved mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, another article that I was reading was about podcast, and there's a guy named uh, Max Cutler. I don't know if this was pro- this was in the New York Times as well. Actually, the uh, the the article is called "Pulp Nonfiction Podcasts Go Mass Market." Anyways, Max Cutler basically he graduated from uh, University of Arizona and their entrepreneurship program. He kind of fell in love with cereal and decided that he was going to do uh, the normal business student thing, which was do it, but do it for cheaper. And so he has, <laughs> he, they have launched in the last three months, their, uh, their podcast network, which is called Parcast, has launched three new shows and all of which are now in the top 10 of iTunes podcast mm-hmm. charts. Mm-hmm. Um, their names are uh, Tales, Un- Unexplained Mysteries and Female Criminals. Huh. So my question is, <laughs> here's the pitch. Yeah. Is, is podcasting going to evolve into like, um, 
the history channel of media. <laughs> you mean, will there be endless podcasts about the Luftwaffe or aliens that, that sort of UFOs? Yes. You know, that's and what's interesting about that. Um, so I was recently attending the Broadcast Education Association Conference, which ironically enough, I went to a panel that talked about podcasting. And they had people who were connected to fairly successful podcasts who are also part-time academics up talking and making recommendations about how to think about what a podcast is. But kind of as traditional broadcasting people, their angle was, you know, what's so what what's your goal? Like, you know, we haven't. And in fact, at some point, we should have an episode where we kind of eviscerate ourselves and talk about sure. what our goals are. Um, but, you know, what's the goal of a particular podcast? And a lot of what they were pushing was, you know, a kind of storytelling that would um, encourage the largest number of audience members and then potentially sponsorship. Right. So they were really using. It was sort of like all the talk about commercial radio, what would be commercial talk radio brought over into the podcasting world. And it made me a little sad in a way because I think the world of podcasting is so much more now. Um, but I think your question is, is is all of that potential creativity going to survive or is it going to get eaten alive by, you know, Bigfoot, serial killers and, you know, conspiracy theories? Right, which is, yeah. which is fine. I mean, I, I listen to that stuff, too. Like, I, I love it. Um, and one of the things that they were mentioning in the in the podcast article was that uh, the, these kind of unsolved crime series are great introductions into podcasts. Like they, they, they convert people who've never listened into podcasts before into it. And I, I certainly think that we saw that with uh serial kind of be one of those first that brought a lot of people over into the podcast medium. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm just interested in that. And I'm also interested in the broader question of what is it about? Why, why are we so fascinated in those type of stories? Like what is it about the, the paperback thriller that that we love so mm-hmm. much? Yeah, there's, I mean, yeah, that's sort of like, I think there's an interesting thing. Maybe this is a, a book that somebody will give me time and money to write sometime about the interface between um, horror as a genre and true crime, fiction, yeah. serial killer books, whatever you'd want to call them. Because I think there's an interesting relationship there. And, you know, I have my theories and there are lots of different explanations as to why people get engaged with horror. And a lot of that can transfer over to why people get engaged with serial killer stuff. Why, why is there this fascination for all the details and for yeah. you know, for these stories about these things that are and and in between interestingly in between the two I think so you got you know horror fiction on the one hand and you've got true crime and then in between is you know, I kind of like tend to think that there's like the urban legend um, creepy pasta the weird stuff that where you kind of part of how it used to work it doesn't I mean some of it still does like this but it's like you're compelled to find it believable. Like you heard from a friend, a friend of a friend said, right, is usually the start of the story. And then the story ends up being the girl who disappears, who was picked up or the, the, the babysitter who's getting the phone calls from in the house or one of those, you know, kind of old things. It's really more about storytelling than about factuality. But, but I think that's just an interesting interface because it's the, those interests seem to be connected with each other and um, there's just more and more of it. I don't, did you get a chance to watch Mindhunter when it was on, no, on Netflix? No. <clears throat> is it um, no longer on? Well, they did a season, and I think I they're I'm pretty sure they'll be doing more because I think it was pretty both commercially and critically successful. Um, but it, you know, it was essentially kind of a deconstruction of how all of this interest in the the profiling of 
people who commit crimes like that developed because, mm-hmm. you know, in a, sort of along the same lines, at some point in history, the FBI decided they weren't going to be cops in uniforms, they were going to be suits, right? And so this was the transition point where they were going to be not necessarily just the people who hunt down the bad guys, but they were going to be the people who would try to understand the bad guys in order to be more effective at stopping them from gotcha. long series of, of of crimes and things like that. So it's really fascinating. And of course, it's really well produced and well written. David Fincher has a big hand in it, and it's really nicely done. It's about, I think his name is John Douglas, was the guy who started this unit or had a big hand in this kind of history of profiling and things like that. But, but you know, it's always, I think that there's still a little bit of a cultural um uh, a negative cast about interest in it because it's got that prurient side to it because it's kind of sex and violence and all that. But it's such an important component of cable television, like what you're saying. When you flip around the dial, it's all there. When you go on Netflix, there is just a, an amazing amount of stuff right. there, right? So, Yeah. I pulled a list, and even as I look at this list, I don't feel like it's complete, but Wikipedia is my source, and so it, it has to be right. And that... <laughs> <laughs> and if, because if it wasn't, somebody would go fix it. <laughs> <laughs> but I pulled the list of um, the the top ten shows uh, with the I guess the most number of seasons, which might might skew this a certain direction. But um, the top ten shows that are currently still on that have the most seasons aired. So the I, don't, I, I guess the oldest shows that are still still in running. Mm-hmm. Um, how many of the ten do you think you can name? Well, the oldest I know the oldest show on television right now is Meet the Press. Yeah, which, see, which, see, like that one's not on. Yeah, yet. so they're not. So they're probably then qualifying right. it to different kinds of. Yeah. So then I think the next step would probably be The Simpsons. Yeah, Simpsons is number two. Uh huh. Number one being it's Saturday Night uh, Saturday Night oh, Live. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Law and Order, Family Guy, NCIS, American Dad, Grey's Anatomy. Criminal Minds, Supernatural, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and The Big Bang Theory. Um, which, if you look at that list, which again, I feel like there's things missing. Like I feel like South Park's been on for like 19 years. Like I don't know why South Park's on. Yeah, it probably depends on what, but they include <clears throat> animation otherwise. Maybe they're just yeah. including network. Is any of it strictly cable? Uh, it's <clears throat> Always Sunny in Philadelphia is. Oh, okay. But other than that, no. So that mm-hmm. might that might be part of it. But um, but of those, Law and Order, NCIS, Criminal Minds, um, also play into that kind of true crime. You know, let's so- solve the crime in one hour type mm-hmm. type venture. And I imagine CSI was on here for a long time as well. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, certainly police procedurals have been. You know, they're they're an American, they're a big deal American genre. Uh, going back to the, you know, the if you go back to the uh, Raymond Chandler and uh, uh, Dashiell Hammett uh, yeah. fiction that became Humphrey Bogart movies and all of that stuff. There's there's uh, and in, in many cases like some James M. Cain novels which were adapted to be films in Europe. So it's it's got really kind of an American core. This uh, and in fact the uh, the the Italian horror subgenre called giallo is partly based on the idea that a publisher in Italy was publishing um, horrific crime books and they were all bright yellow. That was how you could distinguish
distinguish them because that was the the publishers, um, you know, their, the image that they were presenting. And a lot of those I found out because I was kind of curious how they got started in order to eventually become this horror film genre were actually republications, translations and republications of American crime fiction going back to the 1920s and 1930s. So, yeah, I mean, so it's been like an important part of American popular culture, the dime novels. There were a lot of crime stories going on in it. Um, but, there, yeah, so there's that kind of storytelling that's always existed, existed anyway. But then it really seems to glom onto or become a component of popular culture in a really strong way. And, you know, it kind of comes and goes where certainly a couple of those that you're mentioning are a little bit more into like the fantasy science, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. The idea that, uh, uh, that there's this, um, uh, that there is a reliability to certain kinds of trace evidence that actually isn't real. And, and, um, but you know, when, as a jury member, when you go in, you have a belief that, you know, hair and fiber is a much more specific kind of evidence than it actually turns out to be. Yeah. So I looked it up to it. And by the way, that, that list is, uh, top, top shows that are scripted primetime, which is probably why South Park uh, falls outside of that category. Because it's not scripted. It's improvised, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not. But it is it is written in like a three-day period, which is really fascinating. Have oh. you ever watched the turnaround of a South yeah, Park? It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty nuts. Scary. It's yeah. very scary. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what the turnaround is on true crime. Like, I, here's what yeah. we'll do. You go kill someone. <laughs> mm. I'll videotape it. Okay. We'll see if we can get it on the air. No, that would... I shouldn't do that. Should, I shouldn't yeah, encourage you to commit oh, crimes. We shouldn't be recording this you're, right you're now. You're a father. You're a, <laughs> you're a reliable citizen. But speaking of cereal, can I mention one thing? Yeah. Just to kind of get us caught up on what's happening in the world of cereal. This is a New York Times uh, article from the end of March, so not mm. that long ago. An appeals panel on Thursday. The, the 28th, vacated the conviction of Adnan Syed, whose case was chronicled in the first season of the hit podcast serial and ruled that he should be granted a new trial on all charges. Yes. He was convicted in 2000 of the first degree murder and kidnapping of his former girl, I guess it would be kidnapping and murder, right. of uh, his former girlfriend, Heyman Lee. In the ruling, the Maryland Court of Special Appeals said he had received ineffective legal counsel at his trial because his original lawyer had failed to call a witness whose testimony, if believed, quote, would have made it impossible for Syed to have murdered Hay. So, you know, once again, sort of like going back to um, Thin Blue Line, the Earl Morris film that got a a man off death row. In this case, we have uh, another piece of media creating enough uh, attention to what happened in terms of legal proceedings to actually, um, I think, precipitate this kind of an outcome. So this is, of course, not the case with most true crime stuff that happens, but... um, but yeah, I think it's it's an interesting way to think about the relationship between uh, media and, and the actual processing of uh, crime and criminality in our society. Yeah, and that'll be interesting to see. I think uh, if I remember correctly, didn't the the son from uh, how or how to make a murder or whatever that show was called, uh, making a murder, like wasn't he? looked at to potentially be granted a new trial and they said that he did not get granted a new trial. Yeah, that he didn't yeah, he didn't also did not, I think the claim was he didn't have effective counsel, which again, if you watch Making a Murderer the way it's set up he uh, didn't appear to, but of course that's a judgment call. And you know, one of the things about the representations in that and in serial that, as again students of media, we should be careful of is thinking about you know what is this, what's the story that's being constructed from what point of view is it being Correct. told, and to 
Um, so I think, you know, one way of approaching that is to imagine kind of the opposite argument, right? If you were going to, and I think that in serial, there's a lot of this kind of discussion of kind of going back and forth, thinking about if he did it, X would have happened, but this is what actually happened, but that doesn't mean he's completely off. And it really doesn't by the end of it say that he did or didn't, right? That's kind of not the thing. Yeah. I, I think that'll be a tough go at it. I mean, I don't. I know nothing about law, but I know a little bit about instant replay in college football. (laughs) (laughs) And I know the term irrefutable evidence. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 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 I I watched that happen in hockey. It's just not pretty. It's it's, it's tough to to, to overturn a call is all I know. Well, and and officials should do much more shrugging. I think that would be awesome if like, you know, they they took a long time looking at the replay and they walked out in the middle of the field and just went, oh, Yeah. yeah, you tell me. Yeah. Of all the things that, um, uh, what's his name at Tesla could be building. You think robot, uh, referees. Robot would probably... <laughs> that would be a probably nice addition to the company. Let me mention, by the way, as long as we're talking about this and we're in this like fiction, nonfiction crime thing, that there is a series that's on, uh, PBS mystery on masterpiece theater right now. Uh, and it's called unforgotten. And I think that they are, it sort of depends on how you watch it. Um, uh, it's available on the PBS streaming app, and you can get the PBS streaming app simply by making a donation to whatever your local oh, I didn't know that. public television that's station is. Yeah, that's all it takes. Oh, wow. So, and that's something you should do. Big supporter. Uh, I, I personally am a big supporter of public television. I think it's a big deal. I hope you are. Um, but so this, but what's interesting about this mystery, so it starts with the discovery of a body in the concrete basement of a building that's been around for a hundred and some odd years, and they have absolutely no initial information. They just break the concrete and they stumble across a a set of bones and some other evidence. Um, While they're doing that, you're introduced to four other storylines that don't seem to have any direct connection to what you're seeing with this, with this, uh, uh, what turns out to be have been a murder, which, you know, of course, this is I'm not spoiling more than maybe the first two minutes of the show by saying <laughs> this. Um, but what's interesting about it is and, and the reason I think it's worth paying attention, I think it's very cleverly written. I think it's very well produced and it is essentially making an argument about how, you know, the past does not stay buried, basically. And that's, you know, part of it is there's no statute of limitations on murder. In the UK, there isn't here either. And so, um, and what it becomes is kind of this tumble of effects that happens um, when, uh, you know, when, when you make a choice at some point in the past and then don't own up to it and just go on as if it never happened. And then it you know, comes out a lot later. Um, so, uh, Nicola Walker plays the lead, uh, investigator, the lead detective, and she's been in a number of other mystery series. She was in one called river. I don't know if you saw that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, where, um, uh, a, a cop is basically having this conversation with his partner. And then you realize about 10 minutes into it that the whole back of the partner's head is missing. There's a big oh, hole man. in it and she's actually dead. <laughs> <laughs> and he is so it's this great setup because of course then all of his you know cop friends are like who are you talking to <laughs> you know so it's a good so she, anyway she's a she's a, a a fabulous actor and does some amazing work in this so it's called unforgotten and i think like i said yesterday was the second airing and what they're doing this originally ran in the uk in 2015 and there were two uh, three episode stories that they did and so last night was the second of the first set 
So again, on the PBS app, you can get caught up on it pretty quickly. Um, and it really is well produced. It's really nicely done. And it's got a, a, a very engaging story arc going on in it, particularly if you are bothered by, say, priest corruption, racism, mm-hmm. you know, sort of all the all the topics that that um, make that that kind of are part of the world we've been living in for the past 50 years. That's really interesting. I I I feel like I need to um change a statement that I said earlier because our colleague and my former professor Robert Kerr taught media law and I said I know nothing about law and if he's listening <laughs> and he hears me say that he's going to be really frustrated. I know I know I know a little bit about he might law. Quit. He <laughs> might just say that's it. That's I'm it. Done. it. <laughs> this proves what I'm doing does no good whatsoever. Which is not true. Right now. Yeah. Uh, and the, his his work on corporate law is fantastic. It's yeah. actually really really interesting stuff. No, he's a, he's a fantastic guy and mm-hmm. one of my favorite courses that I took here. Uh, the other thing, and, and this is needs to be filed away for what we need to do in the summer, but uh, the documentary that's coming out on the 50th anniversary of Mr. Rogers, uh, oh, yeah. is going to be released uh, at the beginning of June and uh, expect an episode dedicated to that documentary because I was, I was, uh, I was raised first by my parents, but then very closely behind by uh, Fred Rogers and Sesame uh-huh. Street. So. Yeah. That's yeah. I think that's yeah. That'll be really interesting. I'm very excited about that. Did I tell you my George Romero, Fred Rogers story? No. Oh, okay. So, so I was doing some digging around about uh, uh, George Romero, who was the director of Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. And that's what he's most well known for. He made a, a vampire film in 1976 called Martin. And while I was digging around to find out some information about the background of that film, I stumbled across a little bit of a. Uh, it was an extra on the DVD where you see a shot of him, and he actually worked on uh, Mr. Oh, wow. Rogers' Neighborhood very, very early on. Um, I think it was in 1967, and he had actually attempted to hire the woman who was on the show with Fred Rogers to play Barbara in Night of the Living Dead, and uh, they said no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you are not going to take our uh, nice child-friendly actor right. and put her in a film where people eat each other. Yeah, it's well, just m- not, Mr. Rogers yeah. didn't like Looney Tunes. He, no, he no, wasn't a fan no. of, yeah. of, of most uh, television yeah. at the time. But he was also an incredibly passionate supporter of public television. Yes. And, you know, and just a completely, totally wonderful person um, for a lot of reasons. And I'm, I'm assuming that this doc- documentary isn't gonna be the dirt digging <laughs> no i don't <laughs> i don't Rogers. think you could yeah I, i've read multiple books on him um from people who either had covered him once by tom Janode, mm-hmm. um who's a writer i don't know where he is right now uh somewhere in new york um and uh who had, who had done a piece with them and came friends with them i think it's called mr rogers and me mm-hmm. uh, there's a few different books and it seems like from every person who ever came in physical contact with him has, you know, just a, a glowing review of him. Um, mm-hmm. Just a, a, a totally great guy. And you know, I, I think it would be worth it um, in this episode, as long as we're talking about it, maybe right here, that, you know, there was a very famous piece of video of Fred Rogers speaking before Congress yeah. uh, about public television. And maybe we should listen to that. All right. Okay. Mr. Rogers is certainly one of the best things that's ever happened to public television, and I'm proud present Mr. Rogers to you now. For 15 years I have tried in this country and Canada to present what I feel is a meaningful expression of care. I give an expression of care every day to each child to help him realize that he is unique. I end the program by saying 
You've made this day a special day by just your being you. If we in public television can only make it clear that feelings are mentionable and manageable, we will have done a great service. Could I tell you the words of one of the songs which I feel is very important? Yes. This has to do with that good feeling of control, which I feel that the children need to know is there. And it starts out, what do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad, you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong, and nothing you do seems very right, what do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to, can stop when I wish, can stop, stop, stop anytime. And what a good feeling to feel like this and know that the feeling is really mine know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can for a girl can be someday a lady and a boy can be someday a man i think it's wonderful i think it's wonderful <clears throat> looks like you just earned the 20 million dollars <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's a really really good uh-huh. piece um particularly as you listen to the congressman that he's talking to and how his tone changes over time. He's kind of demeaning, right? And then, yeah. and then Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, just really brings him into it. It's yeah, I remember when, you know, at the point when I was younger, when I realized that this is that what you're seeing on television was him, that that's what he was, yes. you know, yes. that, um, that there was, there's not a pretense. It wasn't a, I mean, it was a performance and that we're all performing all the time, but his performance on the television show just happened to match his performance in real life. Yeah. Which is, I think, part of what makes him so compelling in, in you know, that particular little yeah. audio piece. Have you ever had the chance to meet, say, or just even see speak, like, say, like a childhood hero or an actor or actress, you know, that, that you really, really loved and see them as essentially out of character and be incredibly underwhelmed? <laughs> By their... By by their lack, I'd have to say, fortunately, no. I don't think I've ever had that experience. I've I've seen... Uh, See, but if I start going into this, it's going to sound really bizarre. I mean, because like one of the people who was a big influence when I was a kid was Yuri Geller. Hmm. And I'm imagining that a lot of other that a lot of people won't go, hmm, Yuri Geller. I have no idea who that is. <laughs> so Yuri Geller was this uh, I believe he was a British citizen, but he was of South Asian descent. And now this will begin to sound a little bit familiar. He used to do this thing where he would go on television talk shows and things like that. And he would bend spoons mm-hmm. and fix watches mm-hmm. and claim it was all this psychic cool. power he had. And so when I was a little kid, because my parents didn't have really good judgment, they allowed me to go to a psychic fair in the city of Chicago where That's I saw really Yuri awesome. Geller perform uh, but he was totally in character he didn't so he didn't disappoint he bent he bent the spoons he fixed the watches um, and it was only a few years later when um, I saw a television performance of uh, a guy named the amazing Randy who actually used to follow Yuri Geller around ah. and he would say 
I'm going to bend spoons. I'm going to fix watches. This is not psychic anything. This is magic. And he's just blowing smoke. And so don't believe. And it became this like tag team thing that would move through the media for a whole number of years. That's really interesting. That's as close as I can get to being disappointed by a a childhood hero. And I'm embarrassed to say that my childhood hero was a guy who bent spoons and pretended it was psychic power. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I have a similar story in that uh, for what I believe was my eighth birthday party. Uh, my parents hired a magician to come to our house, and I have a, the home video of this. And, and, and in fact, he did a he did a really good job. He was really engaging. He was he's perfect for any birthday party for you know for six to eight year olds. Um, uh, but but years later, I remember talking to my parents about this, and them talking about like how they when they originally called him, they had found you know his name in a phone book. I think is how we had located him. Um, and he just sounded like on the phone, like he had like just woken up or he was strung out or something like he just seemed like the most worn out guy. Uh, and they were so, uh, just elated that, that the thing actually happened and went well for the birthday party because, uh, he did not seem like a great guy out of, out of, uh, outside of the party itself. Uh-huh. I think we like ran into him at like a minor league baseball game one time. Yeah. Later. That's really crazy. Have you ever been to a restaurant where they do the magic where They do table magic. It's Ooh, just yeah. like you go in and sit down and then and you you order and then you're sitting there and then you notice him on the other side of the room and you're like, oh, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's going to come over here and we, do table there magic. Is, there is uh, a, a, a uh, older gentleman in our town who we have ran into him at multiple restaurants across the city who does balloon art. Uh, and will come to your table if you have small children uh-huh. and do balloon art and also say offensive jokes as he does it <laughs> like uh, which which kind are we talking like sexually explicit or racially offensive and insensitive uh, or? I, I would say uh I, I don't remember the specifics but you know definitely insensitive material where it's like you know what you should probably not be telling that to a four-year-old oh, little okay. girl yeah. um but uh but yeah it's a. Uh, and every time, you know, it's like, it's in it. He's, he's, has, he's gotta be the slowest balloon artist <laughs> in the world. So he can work in all of his jokes he's, and then hand spent, it to us. Like, this all is, those years working yeah, against the clock, being yeah, paid by the minute. <laughs> yeah. This is not worth the, the, the balloon poodle that we got out of this deal. There is a, there and was we a, didn't ask for. Right. And, but you get it anyway. It's yeah. a beautiful thing. And it's short term too, because as soon as it's constructed, it begins to go away. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there was a, um, um, yeah, balloon art thing. There was a, there was a a film a long time ago called The Groove Tube. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it was a theatrical mm-hmm. film. It was actually, I think, shot in video and then blown up to thirty five and then theatrically distributed. And it was a bunch of skits. I think Chevy Chase and some people had like pre Saturday Night Live had a role in it. And they did one routine where it was a children's television show, and the the clown comes out and he does his little shtick and everything like that. And then he does this thing where he says, "Okay, now it's time for the kids to be alone in the room, so all the grown ups." can leave leave grown-ups leave leave and then he sits down lights a cigarette and starts reading really racy stories oh, to the kids. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of a funny so i've just ruined some of the groove tube for you, you but it's worth it's worth digging out to see what sort of like sketch comedy looked like before saturday night live when yeah. it got theatrically released which was kind of nice yeah, it's interesting. We've started playing a lot of the movies for our daughters. Uh, they're finally at the age where it's like, here's what we watched when we were kids, you know. Mm-hmm. And us being kids of the late 80s, early 90s, um, it's amazing how quickly things become offensive 
you know like <laughs> culture moves very very fast it's like whoa yeah. like that's that's even a disney movie and you know they're saying that so yeah bill maher just did actually his closing piece on this past weekend's uh real time was kind of about that about people i guess it was partly had to do with a molly ringwald piece that she yeah, had written yeah I, re- I read that uh-huh um i believe it was in vanity fair maybe mm-hmm. Where she was like taking to task some of what happened in some of the films she was in, right? Yeah, and t- and talking about a lot about her, her, you know, her her conflicted feelings and understanding that, um, you know, the work that she did uh, certainly has a special place in history, but yet, um, you know, does not treat a particularly young teenage women in the best light. Um, and that she, you know, she, she played this character. Right. Well, yeah. yeah, And that was so, so Bill Maher's point being Bill Maher, of course, was that it's, it's, you know, of course he always overdoes his criticism of these sorts of things and that it's just ridiculous to actually go back in time and accuse a historical period of not being sure not in, and the joke he makes is not being woke. There was no woke. Right. Um, which is, again, it's kind of a a true, not true kind of thing because there certainly is a certain awareness of, you know, even the guy who's doing table magic for the four-year-old, you know, kind of telling the stories that are kind of in bad taste. Um, so there are historical periods where this happens, certainly representations of race, of Native Americans and African Americans in film, you know. Yeah. yeah, they were to some extent justified by the fact that that's how they were depicted in the media at that point. But all it was was reflective of a culture that hadn't quite come to terms yet with some sense of social justice for these groups. Yeah, that reminds me of a piece that I was reading. I believe it was in the AV Club. I need to start remembering where I'm reading things, but it was about um, it was about the Simpsons, and it's about uh, specifically the character Apu. Are you a Simpsons fan? I I am. Okay, so you know who Apu is. Oh, absolutely. He's, yeah, yes. yeah. He is. Uh, he owns the Quickie Mart. Um, he's the 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 Indian character. Um, but but the question that that this author was asking was, um, <clears throat> essentially, should the Simpsons go away? Right, because it is different in that it is a a cartoon that is literally stuck within the culture of the 90s because no one ever ages mm-hmm. right uh, and that it and because of that it can, it continues to to embody 90s humor uh 30 years later essentially <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, I was just trying to think about because I I just remember I said I was a fan of the show, but we actually there were a couple of points where, you know, we haven't really been watching it much the last few seasons because, you know, for whatever reason. But I remember a a person who I'm very close to, uh, uh, who who in fact usually sits across the couch from me, my wife, who's watching things with me. When Maude Flanders was killed, she just thought that was unconscionable. (laughs) Like you don't, you know, if you're going to come up with a cartoon and, and not have people age, then you can't just oh, kill there you people go. randomly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's and, true. And then it kind of stuck, right? I yeah. mean, Maud did not, you know, I mean, she came back from the dead a couple of times as a ghost <laughs> or whatever, but but she was, I mean, dead was dead in The Simpsons. And that was always one of my favorite things about, uh, and, and if you've never seen, I should say, if, and I don't know if, we, we ever watch her of Ren and Stimpy? Oh, yeah. I, you know, that's something that I'm hoping doesn't get lost in the dustbin of history because these cartoons were revolutionary and I think the characters died in almost every yeah. episode yeah. and in amazing disgusting horrible ways i i so wish i could i could really revive sort of that early 90s classic nickelodeon because it, it gives you a sense of 
how people people were thinking that you could build content towards kids at that time and everything was like had to be like the most disgusting like <laughs> everything was about like farts and and slime. Yeah, yeah yeah and just like about like ew and like you know like like uh, do things and make your parents mad and spit and you know and and stuff like that like it was it was really weird and if you look at kids television now you can tell that media is is no longer being directed to the kids but it's being directed to the parents which they Mm -hmm. all know are watching it so everything now has like that dora explorer um uh educational side of it where they talk back to you and and make you think that you're learning something along the way um (laughs) were you a rugrats fan my younger brother was. Younger, yeah, younger. yeah. So, were you a Rugrats consumer? I, yeah, I, it was, it was on very frequently. In so there, there is. Did you ever see the Lemonade Stand episode? I probably did, but you have to refresh. So my there memory. is. This is. It's. It's just kind of an amazing piece of television. It's probably not hard to find. You can probably find it on on uh, on the the tubes pretty easily. But it was an episode of Rugrats where. Um, where you know Tommy and the other littler kids were supposed to be helping Angelica run a lemonade stand, and he pretty quickly figures out that she's exploiting them. Right? <laughs> she's making them work too much. She's underpaying them. So they decide to set up their own lemonade stand, kind of next door, and their rules are completely different. It is this amazing <laughs> metaphor of a socialist utopia, because at one point Angelica gets really upset and she walks over to the other lemonade stand and says. I have to talk to you about this. Who's in charge here? And Tommy goes, nobody's in charge. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, it it was just actually this like really beautiful piece of television that just really stuck with me. And, uh, you know, every once in a while when it does that, there is, I I, I don't know if you, if this was part of your thing, but there was an uh, article in Vox uh, from yesterday. The Simpsons is stuck in an eternal 1990s. It, it's maybe that's opera- it. Maybe, maybe, yeah, that's yeah. what it is. Okay, yeah. so it wasn't AV Club. It was Vox. It was Vox, that's it. yeah. There you go. So, and uh, apparently there's, yeah, so there's, there's that that kind of plays into it. Children's stuff is, I mean, it's interesting how like now that I don't, and you're, so we're on different parts of that because you're in the, my kids are young and at home and I'm in the my kids are out of the house and we get together and watch Riverdale and laugh at it together but um, but it's interesting how what you can tolerate in terms of children's television changes Uh, because I would never I mean I have as we all walk around with these lists of things we need to watch right now the list is so deep I would never get around to watching the Rugrats again or or something like that so um, but yeah, it, it kind of comes and goes as, as you interact with other people and decide how to play with that. Right. And my, my children aren't, they don't understand. Like for me, I very clearly remember like Rugrats came on at like five thirty, and Doug came on at six. My brother liked Rugrats. I liked Doug. That was sort of the power hour of television in which we were allowed to kind of control the remote, uh, and watch those. Whereas my kids, um, not only have this plethora of media from which they can consume because they just have a Roku and they've got, you know, tons of different channels and they can watch everything from, from Disney junior to, to Nick junior to, to random YouTube television shows that have their own Roku channel as well. Um, but they, they can also like just call it up whenever they want, you know? Mm-hmm. So the idea of live television is, I, don't, I still don't think, I think my oldest daughter who is six is just now starting to understand what live television is mm-hmm. and that it's something 
uh, that's that's different than the Roku experience, but not right. really. Yeah. No, it's kind of weird because I think there used to be associations with things like I, you know, I don't again, um, I don't know if the Saturday morning cartoon thing was a thing. Yes. But that used to be, you know, was sort of like the, yeah. you know, and I know a couple of times I've gone and looked at television because I get kind of curious. So what is on Saturday mornings? And it's you know, it's not a lot. Yeah. Same stuff that's on the rest of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really kind of changed, um, I think, our notion of schedule. Saturday Night Live, in some ways, is a throwback because it's got a particular location on the calendar that's unusual. Yeah. Um, and so little of television, despite the fact that networks are hanging on and they're trying to still program so that people think about consuming network television on a particular night, but it's becoming less and less a part of the media environment we live yeah. in. So. Yeah. Which the Nickelodeon equivalent of that was SNCC, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and all of that. Yeah. Now, one of my, uh, I, I spent oh, probably way too much time one day. I got stuck within this, uh, the, the, the deep YouTube hole of watching people try to get into the old Nickelodeon studios in Orlando, Florida, uh-huh. uh, which is, it, it's really, really sad. And this is the, the sad part of all of this, of Nickelodeon, is it, it basically just got sort of destroyed and removed, and no one's really preserved this history. And there's very, very few remnants of you know what was like a Nickelodeon hotel and and the studios themselves. But I mean, it was crazy. Can you imagine now a entertainment studio with game shows like just totally built for a family experience? Uh-huh. I mean, it just seems so uh, out there now. Yeah, except for the sort of like Disneyfication of of things, sure. of course. Yeah, and the merger between that and you know Harry Potter World at Universal or something like that. Yeah. So, but yeah, there's. I mean, there's certainly this idea that, and kind of another kind of offshoot of that is when they actually do tours in places that are connected to a fictional television show mm-hmm. that was shot in that place. Yeah. So one of the ones that you know I was a. Um, You'll not be shocked to hear a big fan of Inspector Morse. On I thought you were going to Friends. Yeah. yeah, Friends too, yeah. But there's only the one location and then you're done. <laughs> but, but Inspector Morse took place in Oxford. And so there are Inspector Morse Oxford tours cool. where you get to see all the places where fictional stuff didn't happen, but right. where they shot the show, right? Um, and there are Harry Potter tours in, in London. There is one, actually there is one in Oxford that visits hmm. the Oxford locations. Um, they had an interesting thing where where they used, you know, the platform nine and three quarters was right. actually on between platforms nine and ten, and they had a post with a uh, trolley cemented oh, into wow. it like it was halfway through, right? And so you can go stand there and pose with it and get your picture taken. Um, but then they changed the way that they sold tickets. They didn't sell them on the train. They sold them so that you needed the ticket to get on the platform. So they actually moved the platform nine and three quarters setup thing at King's Cross Station in London outside the actual station. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's still in the, it's That's like not the, even the real fictional <laughs> yeah, location. I know. It's like, it's like totally phony, phony. Um, but they moved it outside to where the food court is and then they set it up again and it is so, it's amazing when you go by there because it's so enormously popular most of the time that there are rope lines of people and what they do is they, they give you, you can actually like, have a jacket and a scarf oh, wow. and they'll actually like throw the scarf up in the air. So it looks like the wind is blowing for you to take the picture and people just kind of, and it's a, it's a free thing that people right. do at King's cross station, but it's just kind of amazing yeah. because you know, when I've brought student groups uh, to the UK and then we go there, they're like, Oh, it's there. Yeah. And, it's, and you want to go, no, it's not a thing. It's not real. 
<laughs> but you know, but we all we all have those things, those connections with places. The other one that, that I've always been interested in getting to at some point was uh, from a television show called The Prisoner from 1968. Which, okay. if you're not familiar with it, it's worth looking up and looking at the pictures of the place where it took place, which was. The exteriors, anyway, were shot in a, a resort, an Italianate resort that was built uh, by an architect whose name escapes me right now. Um, but in the, uh, he built it. Uh, so it's and it's in Wales. It's on the coast, like in the middle of nowhere, um, and it's called Port Mirian. Um, and so they they actually have a the the, char- the lead character in the prisoner's name was number six. So they have a number six festival there, and um, it's just that it's kind of you can still go there and stay there. It's kind of expensive. Um, it's uh, I was just going to look up the name. Sir Clo Williams Edda Ellis built it between 1925 and 1975 in the style of an Italian village, and it's by a trust right now it's it's like i said in the middle of nowhere in wales but i kind of want to go there because it's where this tv show about things that never happened yeah. was shot so yeah. <laughs> well that reminds me of um the uh the outsider house in uh tulsa so the, uh, the outsiders oh yeah uh, was filmed in tulsa and he i mean he bought it it was basically you know being rented out i think he bought it for like next to nothing it was like uh uh, $40,000, something like, like that. Actually, $15,000. Gosh, can you believe that? <laughs> Danny Boy O'Connor, an American rapper and member of the hip-hop group House of Pain. There oh. you go. <laughs> oh, okay. It all makes sense now. Right. So he's he's a huge, he's just a, a fan of that, uh, that, that kind of... Uh, culture i guess because he there's a there's a few different films during that era that he's really into uh-huh. but he's a he's super huge fan of the outsiders they'd come through tulsa a lot he has now relocated himself to tulsa to run this you know museum and he's just like i mean it's you know it's, there's not a lot to it yet but he's slowly redoing the house and and uh you know people have been donating artifacts in the movie itself so uh-huh the, you Thank know, you. actually, just, I mean, looking at the notes, the cast of the film, the, the oh, uh, 1983 gosh. film, Matt Dillon, Rob Lowe, Ralph Macchio, Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Hall, Diane Lane, Tom Cruise. That's insane, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. You it's, didn't even say Emilio Estevez. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And, but yeah, another, back in, in Francis Ford Coppola's Essie Hinton phase, she also yeah. did uh, Rumblefish, which was in black and white mostly, which is a hint, there's occasional little flashes of color in it. Uh, which was um, also just a, a, an amazing um, kind of experiment in filmmaking. Uh, one of my favorite performances from Tom Waits, where he plays a guy who oh, yeah. runs a diner. Uh, Matt Dillon is in it. Um, and, of course, Mickey Rourke playing Motorcycle Boy. So, there you um, go. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, there, it's interesting how, you know, the sort of Essie Hinton, it's also got an amazing soundtrack by Stuart Copeland. Um, so it's a, it's a film that I've always thought was really kind of fantastic. I think it made it right. Yeah, it was made right around the same time that The Outsiders was shot. Interesting. Yep. Well, I think our transition to scripted podcasting has gone really well. I, I think so, yeah. Um, I, I, I really thought it was going to take us a lot longer to get through this script <laughs> than it actually took us. But there we are. And and we are very happy to have Fred Rogers here with us. So um hope that you'll, you know. Beyonce, we're ready for you. You can come in now. Yeah. Well, Beyonce's <laughs> got to do her own little podcast thing now. So. All right. Well, thanks again for uh, for catching up with us. Look forward to future podcast. Assuming that the world doesn't end between now and then. There you go.